Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. I want to read uh, an account that you're probably familiar with, but um, let's read it carefully and see if there's some things perhaps we've forgotten. Exodus 32. We'll read the chapter together. Moses writes, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in uh, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. And change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a sound of war in the camp. But he, that is Moses, said, It is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but but the sound of singing I hear. 
It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Now when Moses saw the people, uh, that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Then Moses said in the gate of the camp, and sorry, he stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother, and every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book, but go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Well, let's pray. Our God, we turn our faces toward you. Not a God that we would have made, but the God that is. The God that we read about this morning. The God that can still shock us as we turn the pages of our Bible and read over familiar stories. You are so unlike any God that man has made. Any image that mankind has formed. You are the uncreated creator of all and nothing, nothing in all this universe compares to you. You possess a glory that is all your own. You are solitary in your perfections. You exist in a category all by yourself. And the highest archangel is infinitely 
inferior to you. God, we come to you not because we've figured you out, but because you have opened our eyes to see that we are a needy people, like we looked at this morning. And you are an all-sufficient, infinitely sufficient king. We are amazed to see your mercy offered to Israel when it seems the very first chance they get after being rescued from an idolatrous, cruel nation, they turn and prefer to worship a golden calf rather than to worship you as you really are. They can't wait 40 days for Moses to bring your law back to them. They despair. And even Aaron, who we, we think should have known better, even Aaron quickly crumbles under the, the pressure of the people and goes along with the idolatry. God, we are amazed when we read this account, but we see it in our own hearts at times, the tendency to adjust you, to try to think of you in ways that you really aren't. So we pray that you would open our eyes to see you again and again and again as we study our Bibles. Don't let it be that through the week we neglect this book. And if we open the book, don't let it be that we go through it in a formal way, just rattling off our few verses or chapters for the day. God, we need to know you, to meet you in this book, to have you instruct us like you've instructed believers throughout the ages. How else will we avoid the temptation to think that you're like us, just bigger? God, we feel the pressures that they felt. We feel the fears. And sometimes, God, forgive us, we, we harbor the same doubts in our heart. But you are worthy of all our heart to be devoted to you promptly and sincerely you are worthy of all our trust. You don't share us with anyone else. So we're asking that you help us to see your worth and to live on your worth when we go home and to be a living display in the way that we make our choices, in the way that we talk to the people that sit next to us at work and that eat with us. God, we want to show the world how unique how different, how worthy you are. Father, we pray for those who are sick. We think especially of John and his family, Jane and the kids as they try to figure out what's the best thing to do. We pray for the doctors as they look at the reports and they wonder what antibiotic will work. And Father, we ask that you would not let things become as desperate as they did recently, that John's body would be helped to fight off the infection. But God, we know that we are people that live for a while here, and then our bodies fail. And so we thank you that you've worked in John and Jane's souls that will never fail. And we pray that whatever your choices for them this day, that you would be their unchanging environment, that they would be more aware of you than they are of the uh, intrusive nurses and the beeping machines and the doctor's reports, that it would all be lived through in light of you with your great throne behind everything. And God, we pray that you would do your great will across our little world 
that your name would be revered, that all the competitors would be thrown in the dirt before Christ. Start with us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We are returning to the theme of following Jesus Christ as disciples in an authoritative relationship where we maintain a close and constant contact with him through his word, through prayer, through all the uh, tools that he has given us, worship and um, you know, the, the, uh, the influence of other believers. And we, we come to the pattern of Christ and we see that pattern. It's not just his teachings that we follow, it's the pattern. But what about that pattern could you or could I actually follow? And we think, well, he, he was extraordinary. He was the God-man. And so that's not a very practical pattern. But it is an imminently practical pattern. It is the most practical pattern for the Christian. It is the only thing that fits with who he is. It's the only thing that fits with who you are now. Everything else is really impractical. Well, when we think of the pattern of Christ, we're not talking about imitating the specific tasks that the Father gave the Son in redeeming sinners. We're talking about the fundamental ways that he related to God as a human. How did he relate to God? How did he relate to other people? So maybe you could think of it this way. How did the God-man live as a human, a human life that was perfectly pleasing to the Father from age 1 to age 30 before he started the public ministry? We know a lot about what he did in the three years of public ministry, but we don't have a lot of detail about the 30 years that led up to it, but that's because we don't need it. What we do have, though, is the map that he walked. And that is the moral law of God. It's not just what he commands. It's what he did. And it's what he has given to every believer before. And every believer after us will receive the same map. And it has the writings of Christ on this map. Added to the Old Testament. He has the, the writings of the disciples, the apostles, the, the, the letters of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. It's all written in on the edges. We have more detail, but the same path. The things that God hated thousands of years ago, he hates this morning and he will always hate. And the things that he loved, he loves this morning and he will always love. And that is summarized, not in all the detail that it could be, but summarized in the Ten Commandments. So last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first, looking at the first commandment. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 20. <clears throat> And in verse 3, we find that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, there is not to be allowed in your thoughts, in your hearts, in your worship, in, in your daily choices, any God other than God. No God before my face is literally what it means. Not before me as in priority. The God of the Bible is number one, and then my other gods are number two, three, and four. But the God of the Bible who sees all my thoughts and desires and life, there is to be nothing in my life that is a competitor to him. What do I wake up for? What do I hope in? What do I delight in? 
What do I aim at in my life? Is it God or is it other than God? And when we think of the happiness that God has commanded, and this is the first command, and really all all the other commands flow from this or are built on this, think of the happiness of this life. God forbids you, believer, he forbids everyone, but talking especially to the believer right now, God forbids you and gives you so many reasons for forbidding this. He forbids you to waste your life giving your love to gods that don't exist and hoping in things that will ultimately disappoint and pollute and warp and bend your life out of shape. When we think about the happiness of that, we can join in with Psalm 119, where the psalmist says that God has decreed that or commanded that his precepts would be kept diligently. And then he says, oh, that my ways were established to keep, we could say, this commandment. Oh, that my ways, oh, that my little choices today, the thousands of little choices this week that seem so insignificant, you know, so unspiritual. But let each of them be put, each footstep be put on the path of loving him with all my heart and soul and strength. Now, the second command, which flows from that, is found in verse 4 and 5 and 6. Moses writes, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So that's the second command, and we're going to be looking at that today. It is such a helpful command, and I think that, you know, each time we come to a new command, it's like learning a new hymn. You want to say, I think this is the most significant command for the American church or for us in our day. And, um, but I do feel that we could say this. There is a path that runs parallel to the path of Christianity in Mississippi, It is a path that looks almost like the path of Christ, of Christianity, but it's not. It runs parallel. It's a few feet off of the path. There's something different. There's something wrong at its very foundation. And it may look like that you're going in the right direction when you're on that path, but you are not ultimately going to be going in the right direction. And that path will eventually widen and and get further and further from the path of obedience. And it is the path that starts when we ignore the second command. It is disobedience to this second command, I believe, that is at the root of so much of what is wrong with our nation. Because we are a very religious nation. We are a very evangelically religious nation. We we are a nation full of churches and not just of, you know, not just of religious establishments, but Christian churches and not just Christian churches, but Christian churches with, which claim that the scriptures and the God of that scripture is the only way and that his son is the only way and that the gospel is the only way for a, a person to be right with God. So covered with that kind of church, 
how is it that our nation can be so uh, adrift, so confused about basic right and wrong? How can Congress be full of so many men and women who would say, oh, I grew up going to Sunday school, and then they make decisions that really are more fitting an atheist? And the answer is the ignorance and the unwillingness, ignorance of and unwillingness to keep the second commandment. Now, in the second commandment, we find two basic things, and they weren't both in the first, so let me point them out. We have the command, and that's ex- explicitly stated in the negative, what you're not to do. Remember we said that where the commands are given in the negative, there's also implied a positive side because you can't really avoid the negative and not do the positive. And where commands are in the positive, then there's a negative side because you couldn't really obey God in the way he commands you to obey God positively, do this, if you didn't also avoid other things. So there are two sides of that, and we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But there's the command. There is something you must not do. Second, there are reasons given for the command. He is jealous, and he will act on that jealousy. Well, we're going to focus on the command and how that shows up in ancient times and how that shows up today and what's the cure for that We'll just hit the cure today. We'll hit that more later. So what does the command forbid? The second command forbids the worshiping of the right God. All right, so remember the first command, no other gods before me. Okay, so we want to have the right God, and we want to be wholehearted in having that right God. It's not enough that we don't have idols. We do need the right God. So we do want to do, as we mentioned last week, we want to give that God sincerely and promptly our hearts and then live that out in practical ways through the week. But as we think of having one God, then the second command comes in and says, make sure it is the right version of that one God and not another version. In other words, you are not allowed to adjust your thinking about God, your view of God, and the way you worship this God. Do not have the right God in the wrong way or in the wrong form. The positive side of that is that we do want to devote ourselves to the God that the Bible describes. So we want to make sure that through a diligent use of this word of God, with the humble heart, that throughout our lives, we pursue an ever clearer and better understanding of who he is so that when we think of him and when we worship him, we are thinking of and worshiping the God of the Bible and not a God that we have adjusted to suit what we want. Notice the amount of detail in the second command compared to the first. First command. You shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. <laughs> Pretty short sentence, not many words. Second command, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. So much detail in the second command compared to the first. Why? Well, I mean, the Bible doesn't explain exactly, but I think there's some things that are obvious. One thing that's obvious is the second command is not more important than the first command. 
But the second command is something that we are more prone to do than breaking the first command. In all of humanity, not just people that claim to be Christians, in all of humanity, there has always been um, the basic understanding that there is some being bigger than us. There's somebody that made me or made my parents or made my grandparents or made whoever was the first of the parents. And there's somebody that made this world. There, there's something bigger than us. There's something that, that we should live for. There's some person that we owe. And of course, in, in our sinfulness, we think there's somebody out there that can do us good. And if only I could figure out who he is and what he wants, then we could, we could make him really beneficial. And so the history of humanity is a history of idolatry, where men and women and children just naturally hope in something bigger than themselves, whether it's nature or some concept of, you know, uh, some really lofty, beautiful picture or some, you know, some grotesque picture. I think there are beings out there or a being out there that is bigger than me. And if I could just tap into him, he would be beneficial. But coming to church on Sunday morning, you don't expect to see that we have set up idols all along the platform here at the bottom. You wouldn't expect to see a Buddha or, you know, one of the Hindu idols of death or fertility. Or you wouldn't expect to see one of the Baal or Asherah idols. And you wouldn't expect Chuck to get up or AC to get up. And, you know, in the prayer meeting to say, you can pick which God you want to talk to. Uh, you're not going to be judged if you choose a different one than the person sitting next to you. If we did that, the building would be empty next week. Who would come back? So open idolatry is not so popular in church buildings on Sunday morning. What is much more difficult to avoid is the desire to adjust the God of the Bible to slowly, maybe in a way that we don't even notice, begin to take certain phrases of the Bible that we find so appealing because we feel, I, I need this. So we, you know, we kind of have our favorite spots, our favorite books, our favorite chapters, and they get all the focus. And then there are some other places where we're not so sure that we need that personally. Uh, my family, my marriage, our church, well, we don't feel that we need that as much. And so we de-emphasize those or we kind of neglect those. And there, of course, are places in your Bible that if you're honest, you find them very difficult. I don't understand this or I don't like this. I remember the first time preaching in a small church in South Mississippi, where I was pastoring, and we were going through the Gospel of John, and we hit chapter 6, where there is a lot said by Christ about the sovereignty of God and about the fact that every person that comes to Christ, he will receive them, and he will raise them up on the last day. Great verse. Then a little bit later, no one can come to me unless the Father teaches them and draws them. Not such a popular verse. And so when I preached on the popular verse, God will receive everyone and heal and Christ will raise them up on the last day. You once saved, always saved and no one got angry and they said, that's that's my God. And then we got to the part where it said no one, no one will or can come to Christ apart from God working in the heart, opening their eyes, drawing them, teaching them. And one of the ladies who was a leading lady in the church came and as she was, as the people were filtering by 
shaking hands, she said, um, that is not my God. We have adjusted God to fit us. We have slowly and quietly refashioned or reimagined or re-identified God to look a lot more like a God that would suit what we feel we need most. So you can call this Jesus plus Christianity. We've used that term before. I have the Christ of the Bible, but we've added some things to him. We've adjusted him that way. Or Jesus but Christianity. I have the Jesus of the Bible, but we've removed some things from him that we found less helpful. It is so easy to adjust God in our thoughts, in our prayers, in our songs, in our sermons, and in the way we live at home, the way we talk about him at work. It is so easy to do that we require a lot of detail in the second command. Also, it is hard to spot. Just because it's so easy to do, I guess, it makes it very difficult to spot. We can be adjusting God. We can have a God that doesn't really exist in the way that we worship him. We, we have the right names. We have the right labels. We have the right Bible passages, the right translation, the right hymns, the right ceremonies, the right kind of a building. And we just never stop to think that God might look on this as a people who are worshiping him in an adjusted form. If you go to a church and uh, as you're traveling on the holidays and they sing from a hymn book that's different than our hymn book, but you recognize a lot of the hymns and you think, wow, we have those hymns too. And the preacher makes an announcement and says, uh, remember, starting back in January, we're going to be reading through a such and such book together. And you think, we read through that book. And then the preacher preaches and he says things that we're used to hearing here. And you think, this church is really uh, quite like the one back home. You would never stop and think, but is it worshiping God in a wrong form and breaking the second commandment? Because we would never think that we do that. I want us to look at some examples in scripture of people who unknowingly broke the second commandment. Some of them are so obvious that when we read it, we think, how did you not know it? And some of them are not so obvious. And then I want to ask, how do we spot them in us? Now, as we look at these, I think, five pictures in the scriptures of people who adjusted God, who had the right God, but they had him in the wrong form or approached him in the wrong way. And you're going to see as we look at these passages, there just isn't any way to refashion the way you worship God without refashioning God. Uh, we do that a lot in our country. We have completely refashioned uh, the worship of God to suit, really, the lost person's taste so that people who don't like the Jesus of the Bible will like our church and maybe eventually like the Jesus of the Bible. But I think the scripture is crystal clear that when you do that, at the heart, you're having to refashion God as well. So I want us to notice how they refashion God, but really, just as importantly, why? See if you can see why as we look at these. Well, the first is found in Exodus 32, where we just read, Aaron is... 
with the Israelites. God has rescued the Jews out of Egypt nearly four centuries after he promised Abraham that he would bring Abraham's descendants into a promised land. After so many generations where the Jews were born and died as slaves of the Egyptians, and as things got worse and worse, and the Egyptians became more and more cruel in, their, in the way that they treated the Jews, the Jews began to cry out, and Exodus chapter 2 says, God heard their cry, and God remembered his promises to Abraham. And so he raised up Moses to rescue them. And you know that the way he rescued them was strange. He doesn't do this before or after. He doesn't rescue anybody with 10 plagues any other place in the Bible. But what he does is he sends 10 great plagues and he even gives Pharaoh. He holds up, he props up Pharaoh long enough so that all 10 plagues can go through the land before Pharaoh absolutely caves and says, get out of our land. God does this for a very specific purpose. He could have rescued in many other ways, but in this way, all the Egyptians and all the Jews and all the world that hears about this from this point forward sees in these 10 plagues that the God of Israel is the God of everything. Every other nation had gods that were kind of specified, the God of harvests and the God of storms, uh, the God of family or the God of the sun, Ra, or, or the God of death and hell. So what God does is he just sends 10 plagues that shows that Egyptian gods, which they had a God for all these areas that the plagues affected. Each time you can imagine the Nile turning to blood. Well, the Egyptians had a Nile God and suddenly the Nile is turned to blood and they cry out to the Nile God and the Nile God that doesn't really exist, doesn't do anything after their prayer service and the God of Moses does. And each plague, God is humiliating the empty claims of idolatry. Then he rescues them, you know, and he brings them out. He brings them over the Red Sea, walking across dry land. The Egyptian army follows God drowns the Egyptian army. And you remember that in chapter 15 of Exodus, they break into this great song. And in, in that chapter, turn back a few pages, Exodus 15, 11, they sing something about God's character, not just what he did, but by looking at what he did, they notice something about God's character. And you realize these people have grown up in idolatry. They may have heard something of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they don't know him very well. Verse 11, they have learned this. Who is like you, they say to God. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Well, there isn't any other God like our God, they say. And, and there's such joy. And then what happens next is amazing. They travel about a little. They get to Mount Sinai. Moses is caught up on the mountain. It's a very frightening scene. God causes his glory to descend in a very visible way so the people know that he's there because he's not like the gods that they met in Egypt, you know, that were carved by people's hands. And so the mountain is shaking. There's these the lightnings flashing and Moses walks up, up 
up, up the mountain into the terrible storm and the cloud and the flashings and the thunders and the shaking earth. And he's there for 40 days meeting with God. And the Israelites, there's a, there's a fence put around the bottom of the mountain so that nobody can even get close to the mountain or else they're to be killed because God is holy. Now, after Moses has been gone a long time, the people come to Aaron and they decide that, that Moses is probably not coming back. He went up into that thing and he's not coming back. So they say to Aaron, here's what we want. We want a God that will go before us. You know, a God that we can see, a God that we're more familiar with, more casual, you know, less frightening. So make us a God. And so they take their earrings out and they of their ears and their wives' ears and their sons' ears and they throw it all in there and then Aaron gets the gold and he clearly in the scripture he fashions it into a golden calf. But what is so strange about this is what Aaron says next. Do you remember? We just read it. Aaron gets the gold, he makes the golden calf and then he says this strange thing. Verse four, it says he took this from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf and then and they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. To the I am, to the God that met Abraham, to the God that called Moses. Our God that brought us up out of Egypt... We have now got a new representation of him, one, one that we feel more comfortable with, and we are going to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are going to worship the God that brought us out of the land, but we're just going to worship him in, in a different form. He looks a little different. It's one that we like better. And God is jealous for his people's hearts and minds, and you remember the chapter we read that Moses comes down from the mountain and he finds what's happening and he feels the way God does and 3,000 people are killed that day by Levites. And then God later strikes the whole nation with the plague and Moses intervenes and so God doesn't kill them all. He does remember mercy. Do you see how dangerous this is? In the earliest days of their freedom, they feel that they are free to worship the true God in a different form. And God has to make clear that that cannot be. A second illustration, and these will be more quick. Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam, the reason I mention it second is not because it's in chronological order, but because it's so similar. Years later, Solomon, after David, Solomon is king and God blesses him wonderfully. And Solomon does so many things well, but toward the end of his life, he does so many things poorly, and he begins to indulge his idolatrous wives who come from other lands, and they want their God. They want their own church. They miss the old ways of worshiping their God, and so he builds their God's little temples, and he promotes idolatry throughout the whole land. And it, the Bible is very clear. Solomon himself is kind of caught up in it. His heart's grown cold toward the true God. And so as a result, God said that while he would remember his promises to David and not take his people from the, from the line of David, but he would punish Solomon. And so when Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king, 
there's a split, and ten tribes to the north join a guy named Jeroboam, and two tribes to the south stay with the Davidic ruler, Rehoboam, all right? Rehoboam, our real king, Jeroboam up north, the other guy. Now, God chose Jeroboam just like God chose David. It's astonishing. And God made promises to Jeroboam and said, I will give you the same mercies I gave David. I will be with you like I was with David. But Jeroboam does not know God. And so when pressure comes, political pressure, particularly in the form of fear, he fears that if the people three times a year obeying the Old Testament law, if they pack up and go down and worship God during the three big feasts each year that you had to go to the temple to worship there, when they go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple, Jerusalem's down south. And as they walk up into the capital city and they see the temple there and they worship with their southern brothers and sisters, their hearts will feel convicted. Why did we separate? We shouldn't have created our own nation. We shouldn't have, you know, been so rebellious. So we should go back to the throne of David. Let Rehoboam be our king. And if they do, Jeroboam thought, they'll kill me as a usurper. So he's a He's a pragmatist. He's a very practical man in the way of his thinking. And he decides the best way to handle this is to keep people from visiting Jerusalem. So he builds a temple that they can worship at just inside his territory, just north of Jerusalem, a place called Bethel, and another one way up top, a place called Dan. So wherever you live in the land, there's a temple close to you. And he lets anybody who wants, any man that wants to, can be a priest. And he refashions God in a form that people would feel more comfortable with, maybe more popular. Strangely, it's another golden calf. But he still means for it to be the worship of the true God because when we see them worshiping, they do it just the way they do down south. In other words, even though you're worshiping a golden cow at a different temple and you're disobeying God and breaking the second command, they still see priests with this same kind of clothes and they're still singing the same psalms and they're still coming on the same special days to offer the same kind of sacrifices. They are mirroring, they are mimicking the true religion that's going on down south. It's just that they've got God in a different form up north. And God is jealous for his name. And he destroys the northern ten tribes with the Assyrians and has them carried away. Another one in 2 Kings, in the life of Hezekiah. This one's not so easy to spot. Hezekiah's dad is a wicked idolater, King Ahaz. And he, in ways that nobody before him had ever done, down south in Judah, where the kings were generally better than up north, down south, Ahaz promotes idolatry in a way nobody had ever promoted it before. It is wide open. God says the nation had just kind of all the reins had been thrown off. All restraints were gone. And it was Ahaz's example that did this. So the nation goes crazy with idolatry and immorality and the king's to blame. Well, Ahaz dies and Judah's in a sorry spot politically, financially. They're in trouble morally. His young son, Hezekiah, becomes king. And you remember the account in 2 Kings 18 and then in 2 Chronicles, I think, 28, 29. We find Hezekiah. He becomes king. 
Now, turn to chapter 18 of 2 Kings, and let's read what Hezekiah does. 2 Kings 18. He turns the nation back to God. He is in earnest about seeking the Lord, and he's not going to leave anything to chance. So he oversees the Reformation, the national repentance. And verse 1 through 6 of chapter 18 just gives you a summary. There's so much more in 2 Chronicles. We'll just look at these. Verse 1 of 2 Kings 18. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars. These are idol worshiping sites. And he cut down the Asherah, a, a Phoenician idol. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan, which just means piece of bronze. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Now notice this. There's, temp there's idols everywhere throughout Jerusalem, the capital city. There's idols everywhere throughout Judah. There's even idols in, right in the temple area. The altar that God had commanded to be built and sacrifices to be made, which was right in front of the temple, has now been moved around to the back of the temple by his dad. And a pagan altar is put right there, and a pagan god, the, the god of the sun and the moon, is being worshipped. So Hezekiah rips all of that out. And when he's ripping all these fertility idols out and having them destroyed and putting true worship back in, he comes to this memento, this historical relic, the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent from back in the days of Moses when the people complained and God was grieved with their constant complaining and they were bit by fiery serpents or serpents that their bites, you know, burned and they were dying and God showed mercy. He told Moses, create a bronze serpent, stick it way up on top of a pole so that anybody in in all the hundreds of thousands of people in Israel, they could see it. And if they will look on that serpent and trust me, because this is my tool for saving them, well, I will heal them. And so anyone that looked at the serpent, if you just believed enough to look at the serpent, you would be healed. And they were. And that bronze serpent has been kept for centuries. I mean, you can imagine... It was like if they had a big central church, it would have been, it, you know, it would have been like in the, the foyer of the temple. As you go into the temple, all these beautiful relics and here's the actual serpent, you know. Hezekiah destroys this because they started worshiping it. Now, we don't know anything more about it. We don't know how they ever got to that place. But you can imagine, can't you, that this instrument which God used to rescue them in such a wonderful way, way back in the days of Moses. Well, they don't live in those days. They've lived in the days of Ahaz. And for decade after decade, God has been far from his people. And so any 
any of those wonderful Old Testament stories of all that God did and how powerful he was and how he rescued his people, that's just fairy tale sounding stuff to them. It's ancient. I mean, these people are a long way away from that. Kind of like our day when someone talks about great revivals that God had done in previous centuries. And we think, yeah, I don't know. That sounds great, but uh, it's been a long time. Well, they hear about the great deeds of God in the days of Moses, and they actually have an artifact. They have, they have the bronze serpent, and they worship God in the form of this bronze serpent because that was the tool that he used to rescue people way back when. And Hezekiah represents the heart of God when he jealously destroys it. Another picture. I'm going to throw some out because of the sake of time. Let's jump to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the Jews who are looking for the Messiah. So they have their Bibles and they have all the phrases that describe the coming of the Messiah and what he'll do. And they are sure that they have the right idea of the Messiah and they are ready to embrace him. But they are so far off. They have adjusted their understanding of the Messiah. They have altered and refashioned and reimagined the Messiah. And that doesn't become so clear until the Messiah comes. And when the God-man walks among them and performs miracles and teaches them, and his life perfectly represents the Father, instead of embracing him, they execute him as a fraud. Because when you've adjusted God like they adjusted God in their minds, when they have reimagined God and then they meet God, you have, they had two choices. They could either say, we got pretty much everything wrong and change themselves, or they can get rid of Jesus, who exposes constantly how they got everything wrong. But you can't have both, can you? You can't have the real Christ with you and your false view of Christ. Well, there are many other examples, but we'll stick with those. Now, how do we apply it to ourselves? It doesn't stop with Bible times, does it? First John chapter 5, verse 21, John ends his letter by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And he's not talking necessarily about the temptation to make a little image and say, oh, that's God, but there's the idolatry of the heart as well. Years later, if you read the Puritans in the 1600s, they're happy to point out the Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholics in their catechism and in their explaining the Ten Commandments, they don't have the same Ten Commandments as the Protestants. What we call Commandment 1 and Commandment 2, they say, oh, that's just one commandment, and they just kind of melt them together in order to kind of not emphasize the fact that they're worshiping God using statues of Jesus, statues of Mary, statues of saints. They're bowing before them. And the Protestants, of course, are so quick to point out, you do exactly what God told you not to do. You break the second commandment and they say, oh, no, you, that's not the second commandment. It's more talking about idolatry. It's not talking about, uh, you know, paying adoration to a picture of Jesus. That's fine. And they still have Ten Commandments that you Probably if you have Catholic friends, they don't go around preaching the nine commandments. They just take the 10th commandment and divide it into two. 
Well, this is not a Roman Catholic church, so are we free from all of that mess? And the answer, of course, is not necessarily, not effortlessly, but by the work of God in our hearts, we can be daily free, daily obeying. How can you spot it in your own life? Well, one thing you can ask is, what's the center of Christianity for you? What's the aim of Christianity? Where are you headed? What's your goal? Surely you're not just here just because you had nothing to do on Sunday morning. So why are you here? And there are so many possibilities, but let's be careful and ask God to help us to be honest with ourselves. Are you the center of Christianity? In other words, are you here for you? Are you here to get something out of him? Because he's so helpful, so useful. What's the goal of your Christianity? Is the goal that you would be benefited by God and have, have your best life possible? Or is God the center of Christianity? And yes, you do receive so much from him, but he's the reason you're here. And your goal is his pleasure, his honor. Two very different reasons. If it is us that's at the center of this little church, if it's our families, our marriages, our kids being fixed, uh, our happiness, our nation getting back to where it once was, if that's your goal, if you're trying to use God for that, then you will certainly find yourself guilty of adjusting God in ways that fit what you want out of religion. And you'll be faced with a choice. Do you adjust God to fit what you want? Or do you adjust yourself to fit who he is? But if we look deeper at these examples, maybe we can spot some specific reasons. Why would anybody worship God as if he were a calf or a snake or, or just some Jesus that we imagine would be better than the real Jesus? Well, think about it. In the golden calves, there are times in the life of every church, there are times in the life of every individual Christian, of a Christian marriage, a family, where sometimes God seems frighteningly holy, so different than we think he is. And, you know, especially in the earliest days, you think of the early days of a church plant, are we going to follow God? And every church plant starts by saying, we're going to follow God. And so, okay, well, then... Early on, there will be some decisions you'll have to make, and they will be costly. Do you really trust the God of the Bible? Will you risk everything to follow the God that's described in this book? Or would you say, well, I don't know. I think we have to be a bit more practical. And you adjust him and adjust his worship and adjust his service. And like Aaron, we make a golden cow, and we don't say, this is ox God. We say, this is Jesus. Now, he looks a little different than the Jesus that you're reading about in the book of Matthew, but it's the same Jesus, and he offers us everything. Jeroboam, same thing. There are times in, in a family where following Jesus Christ, really following Christ, really following the words that he says, and not adjusting them to suit what we're willing to give. And we come to those passages, and we look at our teenage children, or we look at our marriage, or we look at our church, and we think, if I follow Christ the way the scripture seems to clearly say, I have to follow him, then I, I'm risking all of this, and I just don't know if I trust him with all of this, and what will you do next? Will you turn back? 
where you adjust Jesus. I mean, you don't become atheist. You're still here. So our temptation probably is not atheism. It's probably, what if I just fashion Jesus a little differently to fit what I need, what I want, and what I'm willing to give? And suddenly we have a Jesus that looks just like us. What about Hezekiah? That's a harder one. In days where there's been a long and spiritual decline, are we tempted to look back on the past with sentimental eyes and say, oh, if only I lived back then, instead of seeking him right now. I mean, the people that would have looked at the the bronze serpent and remembered the good old days when God showed up and rescued, they would have been the same people that would have shown up and offered a sacrifice to the wrong God. We don't hear of a great uprising under Ahaz where the grassroots people said, no more, no more. We, we will not worship the God of the moon and the God of the sun that the other nations worship. We will not come to this building and bow down before an idol. Well, they go along. Sometimes in periods of decline where it seems like it's been so long since God did anything noticeable in his church, it's easy to look back on what he did in the past and maybe the way he did it, revivals. And we say, oh, we just need a revival. And we do need a revival, the kind that God brings. And we, if we're not careful, We put all of our hope in an event and we begin to think that God is that event and without that event we don't have God and we begin to hope in that and we begin to live for that and that becomes our God. We don't know it, but we've actually kind of refashioned God into this. Or much more today among Reformed Baptists, we hear a lot about catechisms and confessions And those are great tools. I think those are wonderful tools. And if we neglect them, and we have neglected them in the past, then there's a lot of danger there. They're helpful tools for teaching ourselves and our children and our neighbors and the people that sit next to us the Bible. Great. But if you go to Baptist conferences now in the Reformed camp, you won't hear many people say, these things are great tools, but they won't fix you because Americans don't buy things that don't promise to fix us. You know, when you advertise it, you have to over advertise it. So they'll say, these things will fix your church. And you think, oh, well, that's a great idea. And so, you know, you buy into it, but they won't fix your church. They won't fix your marriage. They won't fix our children. They're just tools and God has used them in the past. But if they are talked about and focused on as if they could fix us. Do you not think that God is grieved by us refashioning him into a bronze serpent and worshiping him? I've told you before, but anytime I preach in little Reformed Baptist churches, I never get asked at the front door about what I've learned about Christ that week or what do I think is the most you know, intoxicating thing about Christ or how has my prayer life been or how is God at work in the church? I get asked two questions. Are you, do you, are you confessional? Is your church confessional? Do you have the 1689 and do you guys have a catechism as if that would fix us? Or we can be like the Jews in Jesus' day 
we can have an idea of the Jesus that we need. And we say, we need a Jesus that will do this. We need a Jesus that fixes America. And we need a Jesus that fixes our church. And we need a Jesus that provides this and this. And we need a Jesus that does this at this cost because this is all that we're willing to pay. And then because we're quoting Bible passages, like the Jewish leaders, we would never imagine that actually we have refashioned Jesus into a different form. And the Christ in my imagination is not the Christ of the Bible. And the evidence is when we come across the Christ of the Bible, we're a bit shocked and we're having to give explanations because we're faced with the same crisis the Jews were. Do I adjust me to fit the Christ of the Bible, adjust my thoughts of Christ to fit that Christ, or do I adjust that Jesus in the Bible to, to fit my Jesus? There are ways of turning your back on the Christ of the Bible that allow you to still go to church. The Jews did it in Jesus' day. So whether it's because we're pragmatist or whether we, we, we feel that we need God in a more approachable form or whether you know, we're hoping in past kindnesses that God did and forgetting to do like Paul who said, I forget what, what went behind. I turn my back on all those wonderful experiences and all the ways that God used me. I don't focus on those. I forget what lies behind and I press on to know him. And that's the cure. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks. The greatest cure for the sin that's mentioned in the second commandment is the positive aspect, the flip side of that. Don't make God in a false form. Don't adjust God. Okay, so the positive is make sure that you pursue such clear biblical views of God that when you live for him and praise him and hope in him and worship him, it's the God of the Bible and not a God of our imagination, not an adjusted God. The only way to avoid the sin of the second that the second commandment forbids is daily time, daily acquaintance, daily encounters with the God of the Bible in the Bible. God gave us a book. So to know him, it's going to require study, 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 study. It's a, it's a unique book, but it won't teach you by you owning it. So you're going to have to study from the front to the back and go back and compare passages. And there are going to be chapters that you find difficult to even understand what it's saying. But that's how it is with books. And we don't give up. And by the grace of God, we humble ourselves and we ask for him to help us. And he will help us and he will teach us. But he will not do it with your Bible closed. So we study and we memorize and we discuss and we pray and we live on what we're learning and we are daily delivered from any temptation to take this infinitely impressive God of the Bible and shrink him down to something we would make or a Jesus we would prefer. Why would you want that Jesus once you've met the God of the Bible? Well, I'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for opening up to us who you really are from every angle, whether it's history or songs, prayers and poetry, whether it's first hand eyewitness accounts of your son or letters that explain what we just saw.
or even that extraordinary sight of the glory of Christ in the book of Revelation. God, everything we need to know you and love you, you've given. And we thank you for sending your spirit. So wherever you find us this morning spiritually, whether distant and confused and wondering if we really know you, or whether walking happily with you and we want to maintain a sweet carefulness from love, God, will you help us? Will you not let us, let the words of the second commandment fall on the ground and get trampled and choked by all the busy things that will hit us as soon as we say amen? For our soul's sake, for the sake of your reputation in the lives of the people that we love and we meet throughout the week, God, help us to love you with all our heart and soul and strength and help us to love you as you really are and not adjust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.